Hello, everyone. My name is Joshua Gilliland. I'm one of the founding attorneys of the Legal Geeks. With me is Donna Nicholas from the San Diego City Attorney's Office. And we're going to talk about strange new worlds. Uh, Dana, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. Happy to be here. Hey, I just want to throw out the legal thing because you know we're lawyers, so we got to do it. The opinions expressed today are my own and not that of my office. Um, but having said that, this is going to be a lot of fun. I can't wait. Absolutely. Because again, your boss might have a different opinion about Star Trek. It would be interesting for the <laughs> city attorney to actually make comments about, yes, I enjoyed this. So the, here were the legal issues I spotted. So first off, you're, we, we did San Diego Comic Fest together with Judge Mitch Debin. You're a longtime Trek fan. What do you think of Strange New Worlds? I really like the show. It's only two episodes in and I can't wait for the next one. And I've watched them a few times each. And I, and I think that they did a fabulous job bringing it forward and backwards at the same time. It's really hard to get a prequel wedged in between two really good shows without messing it up. And I think that they did an extraordinary job with that. It brings me so much joy each week to see this. <laughs> Hearing the captain's oath again for the first time since Next Generation ended is phenomenal. And that feeling of hope, of working together with others, of wanting people to be happy and succeed and to go help others who are in need. Oh, it just hits all the feels about why Star Trek is great. Yeah, absolutely. Star Trek is so much like the law because the law is designed to help other people. And you just get the more people that you have coming together, working together, the better it is for everyone. Absolutely. So who, which of these characters have, have spoken to you the most? Oh, that's hard to pick. I, I really am intrigued about Uhura because I, that whole relationship between Spock and Uhura, I was like, wait, what? <sighs> Mind blown. And now they've gone back to the original character and she was supposed to be from Africa rather than from the US, which they did, I believe, in the original series. And so I was like, how do they get her, like, how, how are they going to transition uh, with that relationship between Spock and Uhura? Uh, and then again, between Spock and Kirk, because he's there with his brother. And so there's not a lot of talk that I've seen between Spock saying, yeah, I was friends with your brother. I was your brother's boss. And now I'm, you're my boss. Like, that's interesting to me. Yeah, that would be an off-camera discussion. You think there'd be some comment about like, so much like your brother. I mean, just, no, granted, exactly. I have friends who are also friends with my brother. But like there isn't overlap in conversations, but there is a little, there is a little reference that somebody would reference Gabe and that person might also reference me to my brother, Gabe. So like that. So again, that's, it's a little weird, but it also, there might have been enough time, like, you know, 10 years that, or like, let's just say that it's eight years before Kirk commands the enterprise. It's still an odd thing not to mention it, 
but the passage right. of time might play a factor. But uh, now we're just trying to rewrite canon to make it fit. So that's the. I like Pike a lot. The captain who will have a dinner party and everyone's cooking and working together, asking what, talking to the youngest person in the room about what, you know, like their background, what do they want in life? When there's an emergency, asking for opinions from others. I right. just, I, I like that command style. And that's important. And uh, it reminds me of a quote that I heard recently that a boss who doesn't listen to his workers soon will not have workers who ha or soon will have workers who have nothing to say. Yeah, it's he has a really welcoming command style. You know, he projects confidence that those who are with him probably feel safe because he's making smart decisions. But he's also empowering people and asking people for their feedback and, and their ideas. It's just a really nice style. It's, it's different than Archer, Kirk, Picard, Janeway, Cisco. It's different than those we've seen before, but also similar because, again, there's still a Starfleet captain. So there's the the leadership factor of wanting to help others and uh, and empower folks, but he's just I, I want to say a, a high emotional IQ and understanding people. He he is in a way. Um, I found it very interesting that he critiqued his staff like, "Hey, you didn't trust me. You, you thought there would be a problem." that I wouldn't trust you, so instead you decided not to trust me. But that's exactly what he did with the admiral. He didn't say, hey, Admiral, I, I went and I had this vision of what's going to happen to me in the future, and I'm totally weirded out, and I'm not in a good headspace. Instead, he chose not to trust him and just not tell him. That's a powerful observation, because I did not make it. I focused on the fact that the Admiral didn't know about what happened to Discovery and the Mirror Universe and the future. And since it's classified, Pike couldn't tell Admiral um, uh, Robin April why. So that was, that's what I focused on. But that's, that's a really neat parallel that you picked out. So well done. Uh, let's- well, Thank you. I try my best. You, you excel. <laughs> So we'll let's, see, uh, I can't remember names, so we'll, we'll it bounces out. It, it took me like a moment a, to remember Admiral April, so it's okay. So, like a broken clock, I'm right twice a day. That was one. <laughs> I got one more to go and sleep. <laughs> Here, yeah. So let's. Uh, I, I picked two issues that come up heavily in the first one, and then echo throughout the second and the first start a little in reverse order from the outline was the necessity defense in Strange New Worlds for Captain Pike to violate general order number one. And I'll, I'll run through what the necessity defense is. And then uh, Dana, I, I wanna get your thoughts on, hey, does it fit? So the necessity defense is, uh, 
when you make a decision saying that I'm going to break a rule because the harm that would have resulted from compliance with the law would have significantly exceeded the harm actually resulting from the defendant's breach of the law. And in this situation, it's we have a pre-warp society on Kylie, oh, what's the number? Um, 279. Yes, thank you, 279, that they learned about warp technology because of the battle that took place at the end of Discovery Season 2. And instead of making warp drive, they decide to make a warp bomb. And they've tested it. And the Federation mistook that for a warp signature when it was a detonation. And Pike takes the situation of we've inadvertently influenced this planet. There's no remediation clause to the general order number one, which will eventually be known as the prime directive of don't influence a developing society. So he decides to influence a developing society so they don't blow themselves up with the technology they learned from Enterprise and Discovery and and the Klingons uh, and the Kelpians. And so the task for the necessity defense is that you act in an emergency to prevent significant bodily harm or evil that there were no adequate legal remedies, that the defendant's acts did not create a greater danger than the one avoided, and that when the defendant acted, he actually believed the act was necessary to prevent the threat, harm, or threatened harm or evil, and a reasonable person would have believed that the act was necessary under the circumstances, and the defendant did not contribute to the emergency. Dana, Walk us through on, do you think Pike was right? Well, I think one of the very important steps, we can't forget the first step is it has to be a crime, right? And that's where the necessity defense comes in. And I'm not convinced at this point that violation of the prime directive or general order one at the time was actually a criminal offense. Uh, I think it, it, It's a negative rule. Right. I would need to go look it up. There's, there was a comic that defined it. Hold on. Let's pull it up to see if it has a criminal element or not. But you might be really thinking this through in a way that takes it like out this- of yeah, because first there has to be a clause that says violation of this rule is a crime punishable by imprisonment, death, or or uh, or fine. All right. So the prime directive uh, states, and this is from um, Memory Alpha. <coughs> pardon me. As the right of each sentence, each sentence species to live in accordance with its normal cultural. Evolution is considered sacred. No Starfleet personnel may interfere with the normal and healthy development of alien life and culture. Such interference includes introducing superior knowledge, strength, or technology to a world whose society is incapable of handling such advises wisely. Starfleet personnel may not violate this prime directive, even to save their lives and or their ship, unless they are acting to right an earlier violation or an accident, uh, accidental contamination of said culture. 
The directive takes precedent over any other considerations and carries with it the highest moral obligation. Hmm. I, I'm not convinced that the, that the moral obligation uh, is a criminal one or is a criminal penalty, but let's pretend that it is. I would say that the necessity defense does apply in this case because he's acting to prevent other harm uh, to Kylie 279, not just from themselves, but if, if, if Pike and his group were able to see um, what they mistook for warp signature and it was a bomb, can you imagine what would happen when other groups came? It's only a matter of time before say the Klingons found out or the Borg or anyone else. And that would highly endanger that, that society. So it's better for them to wait until they're ready and they're more prepared to deal with those harms that are coming their way. So I think that the necessity to defend all of those people really, um, I, I could see it. I could see that defense working for him. I think it does too, because the way that he talks them off the ledge, first right. they, he gets the, the two disagreeing factions to actually get together and start talking to each other because they reveal the existence of the Enterprise. They go suborbital and like are over a city. And the visual is just stunning. Like it is so cool to see that. Right. And it, the society mirrors 21st century us uh, with 24 hour news and coverage and you got people protesting outside and it looks familiar and it's, you know, like, so the foreheads are different and weird looking, but it's. It feels you know, like last week in America. Yeah. Yeah. And when he talks about the second American civil war, which then turns into world war three and then the eugenics wars, and they have footage from January 6th, you know, it's like, Hmm, not subtle point made. <laughs> and then they shoot. And showing them, this is what happened when World War III started. And it's Washington getting hit with a nuclear bomb, Paris getting hit with a nuclear bomb, orbital view of Earth with nuclear explosions going off, and everyone, going, and everyone on Kylie going like, you know, we can work this out. We can, we can be better we don't need to turn into radioactive slag in order for us to realize the error of our ways. Sure, sure. It just, I thought it was pure Trek. It was pure Trek. And I was like, wow, they really kind of overdid it with the bombs though. Because think about it. If we really had that many nuclear bombs, there wouldn't be an earth to go back to. It would. <clears throat> it would take a long time. It would take a long, and this is, Granted, we're lawyers, we're not nuclear weapons experts, but right. from what I understand that there can be low radiation yield nuclear weapons, so the fallout's smaller, but I, from what I understand, I still think you would create a nuclear winter right. and blowing up any city just by looking at the fires that we had in California 
that, you know, 100 miles away in San Jose look like the surface of Venus. Imagine if LA took a nuclear hit, San Diego would be permanently overcast. Right, right. And, uh, but the point is, but I'm happy that San Francisco remained amazing mm-hmm. and uh, the Golden Gate Bridge remained. Kind of makes sense if that if it was a city that was unscathed in World War III, that that would be a hub for Starfleet Academy to be formed uh, yeah. because it's less rebuilding. So, <laughs> hey, it's still intact. Uh, anyway, Pike talks down a planet from blowing itself up. That's a message that Gene Roddenberry intended. It seems on point. And And, and I think keeping people from blowing themselves up is really what what we want. And uh, so I I would say, yes, it it qualifies for that defense, for necessity. The other fun legal topic is the DD to rescue. And uh, let's, let's walk through the requirements and then we'll talk about the duty to rescue elements from uh, Strange New Worlds episode one and then from Strange New Worlds episode two. So the legal requirement, the law does not impose a duty to rescue a stranger absent a special relationship. Moreover, there is no duty to protect others from the criminal acts of third parties. A special relationship can arise when one party is entrusted with the well-being of another individual. Uh, one of those situations and when someone has a custodial relationship to another person. So this is, there's no positive duty that if you see someone drowning, that you have to go out and swim and rescue them. However, if you do swim out and rescue them and you start pulling them back in, you can't abandon the rescue then and go like, you know what, I'm tired. And you leave someone in a worse <laughs> position than if you had. Right. So we don't have like a hue and cry rescue mechanism. And if you refuse to rescue someone, that might make you a horrible person, but you were under no legal obligation to put yourself in harm's way to go save someone. And sometimes it just accounts for people panicking and freezing, right? You see something horrible and you freeze. And that doesn't make people necessarily a horrible person. That just means that they're super shocked. Um, But it also leaves room for that old law school rule, danger invites rescue. I, I, one example, I remember being in lunch or excuse me, in line to get lunch from a San Francisco, I think it was the San Francisco Soup Company or it was a taco place, one or the other. Okay. And I made the made my order and I was off and it's lunchtime. So it's a packed restaurant. And one guy across the way just collapses. Oh no. Everyone around him just kind of turned and looked. I moved from the other half of the restaurant to go towards him. And a manager, some employee, beat me to him. And when I saw that he beat me to him, I backed off at that point. But I was just really disappointed with 
there's tons of people here and a bunch of you just froze. Right. Uh, on the flip side, you know, we've tragically just, we've been having mass shootings, you know, and, and one was at a church and it was the pastor that hit the gunman with a chair and the other parishioners like hogtied the assailant. I like, there's people not just sta standing by. They all took action to protect others. So it's, it's always interesting to watch who responds. Right, and who responds first? Because we know from like 9-11, some people who responded on the plane, that second plane, mm -hmm. that they were frozen. They didn't do anything until someone else said, we got to take care of this. Let's do it now. And then they were like, oh yeah, you're right. Let's go. Um, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's... Yeah, I don't think there anyone trying to hijack a plane in America will have to fight every passenger now just because of 21 years later, we won't take that. And with mass shootings, people stand up. Right. Uh, but I, it's like I was having lunch with my grandfather at a restaurant and I saw someone outside in the parking lot go down and go down hard. Wow. I ran out, out to them and, and like a couple other people did too and, and made sure the person was okay, figured out if we needed to call 911. And it's just, like my mom was a paramedic. So I, I was raised with the mindset of go help, help others. Yeah, uh, I, I just, and a lot of people do, but I've, Again, that, that way people freeze. And maybe the difference is that when it's a mass shooting or a mass event where the person's own individual self is, on, is in danger, people are more willing to act yeah. or they, they focus on it. Like I have to save myself. Um, where if it's, you know, the person outside, you're not related to them. Uh, they're outside. Someone else will help them. Someone else is better able to assist than I am. And I, I'd like to be positive and think that maybe people are, I'm, I'm not good enough. Somebody else is better. Someone else is better trained. And, and maybe that's it. I, I would hope. Yeah. Well, again, it's, I remember having a blowout and having pulled the side of the road and somebody followed me over and made sure I was okay. Like while I called triple O. So there's, there are plenty of examples of people lending a hand, but it's, uh, Star Trek really does highlight going out and helping others. So this Absolutely. is, so we got some extreme examples here. So, right. in, so in the first episode, the Enterprise is tasked with saving number one and the two other crewmen from the Archer who are captured. Was the crew of the Enterprise and Pike under an obligation to go rescue number one? I would say that under a duty to rescue, no, but under the prime directive or general order one, yes, because they didn't want to contaminate their timeline or contaminate that society. Because what do you do with alien species that you don't know what you to do with them? Um, they probably would do what we would do here and probably do all types of biological testing 
eventually there would be an alien autopsy and fake video on the internet. I, I think there might be a special relationship because of being in the service together. That's uh, true. Uh, but the not wanting to contaminate the, the planet, that, that does raise some interesting prospects. But I, I think because of um, like, you know, the desire to go out and like try to bring back POWs, there, there might be an a, a special relationship or a duty codified by law to go get, go rescue the service members. Uh, that said, in episode two, they decide, hey, this comma is going to kill millions of people who live on Persephone three. They're not pre they're pre warp, and just because we can't go interact and talk with them doesn't mean we're going to leave them to die. And that's a nice mindset of like, so we can't go visit because that's going to screw things up and they might think we're gods and all kinds of other problems, but we're not going to watch them die. So let's figure out how to go save them. Uh, do you think there, there was a legal duty for them to do so? It's one of those things where it's just the right thing to do. It's just the right thing to do. I think that if they didn't act, if they didn't imperil themselves in order to try to stop the comet, um, sending Spock out into the shuttlecraft to try to generate the, um, the necessary heat and, and signature so that they could pull the comet pieces away, I, I don't think that any jury would find them guilty of not following through with their duty to rescue because you don't have to put yourself in harm's way in order to save another. Yeah, it's, this is the, what makes them heroes. This is why we like them because they're going, it'd really suck if we let them die. So let's save them. They'll never know it's us. We will never meet the people who live there, but we're going to do it anyway because it's the right thing to do. Right. And they had risk to themselves too, because the guardians of the comet the, the keepers, they were like, no, 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 no. You can't interfere. You can't touch the comet. You can't do anything. Get out of here. Beat feet. Yeah. And those, I mean, I agree with Pike's sentiment. They're zealots, not shepherds. It's like, <laughs> right, right. It's like funny. Our interference made it so the comet did not kill everyone on the planet. So your idea of the comet's going to decide who lives and dies is a really kind of like messed up. This is an ancient alien situation of they put a structure in a comet that's flying around. They're gone. Right. It's automated. I don't think that they intended for it to become a religious icon that we just let fly around and smash into things. Well, you know, who knows? And that's to, I don't want to be, give a spoiler, you know, but who knows? And that's the beauty of it because it's there's no answer of like, we're not going to meet the super species that made it. This is just going to be a mystery. And that's fine. Like we, we had that in the original series where they would meet super alien races. Right. And it's like, Oh, you have godlike technology that we can't even comprehend. Okay, we're just gonna back away slowly. 
And it was kind of general order one coming back to -hmm. the crew. You know, they have their set of rules. We can't interfere. And then now they're on the other side of that where another alien civilization is saying, don't interfere. We're not going to interfere. Just kind of leave it be. And for the, the shepherds, it's a matter of faith. Right. And the way that they don't seem like a violent species, but they are, their faith system looks fanatical to us. It does. It's kind of like the folks that followed around the Beatles for many years, right? Oh, I, you know, like I was raised Lutheran. So like our view of Christianity and and my view is we're supposed to go out and help others. Not God will take care of them. Period. End of discussion. So like if you see someone struggling on the street, God will take care of it. Like that is morally offensive to me because it's like, hey. why don't you help? <laughs> like, well, it's kind of like it, it t- not to get too religious or too biblical, um, but it's the Good Samaritan story. Yeah. Right. Yeah. right. So the, the heresies are like, mm, if they die because God wanted it that way, I'm going to cross on the other side of the street so I don't get contaminated because I still need to be able to do my, re- my religious rituals. You know, it's like, uh, what are you going to do? You're going to step in or not step in? Yeah, and what's the greater purpose of, of the faith? You know, because afterwards, we're like, like, see, the planet's better now. Unaware that's it's the reason the comet didn't crash into the planet was Spock taking affirmative action for them to pull the wool over the eyes of the shepherds in order to make sure that the planet wasn't destroyed. But in a way, the shepherds were also kind of right because when, you know, Uhura looks at the data that they received from the asteroid before they even got involved with it, it showed the exact size uh, pieces breaking off in the exact shape as they did when Spock went by. So it's interesting that both sides were right and that the producers didn't take the side of, you know, one is right, the other is right. They kind of said, well, we'll make them both right. It's a, it worked. It worked really well. It worked and, really well. And the shepherds, they, they're they not enemies. Like they're, right. they're, not, they're not a dangerous race. It's like, well, they, they're very different, but we can get along. And again, beauty of Star Trek and going, it's okay. Different doesn't mean bad. It just means different. There you go. And you can still have a really cool dinner party together. So uh, (laughs) absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it looked tasty in his quarters and hanging out afterwards, having a glass of wine, just talking about life. Mm. (laughs) And I forget, uh, oh gosh, what's his name? He was uh, uh, blind, alien, white. Yes, the new engineer, new chief engineer. I forget his name. Was it like Hemmer or something with an H E M? We need we need more screen time with him because he's an interesting character. Absolutely, absolutely. Him catching the carrot. Uh, amazing. 
I couldn't do that sighted. I wonder how many takes that took to like, get that right. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> dude. <laughs> and in the way that she schooled them by speaking in each of their languages, calling them out. So mm. I loved it. And then she's like, oh, I hear you speak 17 languages. Actually, it's 38. And I'm like, <laughs> oh. <laughs> and 22 from my home. Town. So it's like, right. so, wow. It's, it's just, oh, just so good. Uh, but this, this brings us to the bigger theme that's going to be a recurring motif, and that Captain Pike knows he's going to end up getting severely burned and in the chair, only able to blink in binary. Right. He also knows the names of the cadets he will save. Desley Swindler, Takikwa Dawn, Malik Al-Khazar, Yuto Hoshaid, and Andrea Lopez. And I'm sure I mispronounced more than one of those, Uh, but I did go through with the subtitles on to write them all down. Excellent. He knows the day he's going to save them. And then he then looks them up and they're like around, I don't know, eight to 10, because it's 10 years in the future when this is going to happen. I think that creates a special relationship because he knows he needs to be there in order to save specific people. that could create a special relationship um but how how does he go about saving them it looks like i mean does he have to stick to the original plan of being burned binary or can he do something else that encourages them to save themselves or someone else to save them or fix the problem before it happens yeah those were exactly uh but that would presume he he has enough information to stop whatever it is you know, if the only thing you know is at this date and time, people are all going to be in this room and I have to, you know, let, let's make it a little, little easier. And I say that w- before making an extreme example. We know when John F. Kennedy was shot by Lee Harvey Oswald. And to stop that, you would either need to make sure President Kennedy didn't go to Dallas or they put the bulletproof top on the car or stop Lee Harvey Oswald. But if the only thing that you know is the date and time and location where Kennedy's going to be, and that's the only way that you can interact with it, what do you do to protect President Kennedy? Is it jump on the car and take the bullet? Right. Is it to prevent the car from being on that path? If you have enough information to make that happen. <laughs> like that's the right, right. But I think that it takes some of the pressure off with him knowing the names of the cadets and seeing looking them up and seeing how young they are. That takes away some of the pressure that he in the hesitancy that he had to act uh, in the first two episodes. I think that Pike not only accepts this that but he realizes this is what i have to do to save these 
five wonderful individuals to make sure that they can have lives. And if I just say it myself, I'm a crummy person because I'm gonna let five kids die. So this is what I have to do. This is where my life is going. And here's all the things I'm gonna do before that day. I, think-, I think that's part of the reason why I think he didn't go on the away mission. He's like, I can't risk it because I need to stay here and be around for this other event in the future. And I think we're gonna see him avoiding risks in other episodes because he feels a duty to these cadets. I'm not sure on that. Like Uh, I said, I'm only right twice a day. (laughs) I I could be wrong. I think he's doing more the Picard or Janeway level of command of the captain doesn't beam down all the time. Because uh, I've, I've watched the original series with friends who are in the Coast Guard and, and one of them's a captain in charge of a base. And, and like in watching an, you know, an original series episode where it's like the captain, the first officer, the medical officer and the chief engineer, she's like, the senior staff wouldn't all be there together. <laughs> she, she was like offended and horrified the, by the prospect of they wouldn't all go down. They would send people. And I think Pike's doing that, that approach of, of, of that. But like in episode one, we saw him being down into the thick of things. Well, it's kind of like Camelot, right? Or, or, or Old England, when okay. the king would go to battle with the men. Like you gotta rally the folks around you. And so if the king is out there raising his sword for it, then I should be doing it too. And, and that's kind of what they had. And they looked down on kings or leaders who weren't out there physically with their troops in harm's way. You know, they're the people who should be stepping foot first into the country. Um, and so it's kind of a shift from that old style to our new, where we're like, really the decision maker shouldn't go. We'll send the red shirts. <laughs> yeah. it's. I, you know, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs doesn't fly the bombing mission. Like it's that right. we delegate and we've learned how to delegate. Uh, but, you know, like the promo slides I've seen for the next episode show him on a mission. So like he'll, but that's, uh, that is an interesting idea to think about of, okay, how do you act? that if you have knowledge that on this day and time, I'm gonna do something that's gonna save people, but completely change my life in a way that will not be good. You know, like, how do you live with that? It depends on how he looks at it. Because remember, number one said, hey, is this guaranteed to happen? Or is this just something that could happen? And so if it's guaranteed to happen, then go take all the risks you want because nothing's going to happen to you for at least 10 years. Or if it's not guaranteed and you could still change things, that still means that you could still be injured. You could still be killed. You could still put yourself in a position that you couldn't help those cadets who now you feel that you have a duty to protect. Yeah, well said. I got to say, I haven't felt this connected to a Star Trek show in a long time. And I mean, I watch all of them. 
you know, whether it's yeah. Lower Decks and Discovery or Picard, you know, I'll watch it stay up till, you know, 1120 or whenever it drops the night before. So like I do that with all of them. So like it means a lot to me. But this is the one I feel the most connection to. If anyone out there listening has a connection with Paramount Plus where <laughs> we can get the drop a little earlier, just saying, I would love to get the drop a little bit earlier. I promise I won't like spread the news or or, or leak an ending or anything. I promise. I'll just be extra geeked out. We're good with NDAs. But uh, no, like uh, on top of that, if they ever want a JAG officer, we can suit up. Like we can totally rock those uniforms. I, I already wore the red. I you already did? wore the I did. So uh, I'm going to do it. That, as you should. Uh, <laughs> as you I just want to see them have like, I, I have to say that I was really excited about Discovery a little bit more than this episode because being a woman of some girth, right? Like I'm not a size zero and I don't want to be a size zero, but I was excited to see that there were actually people uh, that were at Starfleet Academy that were in Starfleet that weren't a size zero. And I was like, you can't fight a Vulcan that thin. You can't fight a Klingon when you're that thin. You couldn't even fight a treble when you're that thin. Come on. So I was excited about that. Oh, I'm laughing. Uh, that is so awesome. The having realistic body types, like where it doesn't it, look like. Right. It's like my job is not to be in the gym six hours a day. I'm behind a keyboard looking through Discovery and not the TV show or depot prep or writing joint case management conference statements. You know, I, I'm a keyboard warrior. And For people uh, who are so weak from the lack of carbohydrates that they just really can't think straight. That's yeah. not helping anybody. No, golly, no. Uh, this is, uh, it's just such a good show. It just brings me so much joy. It's amazing. And I love the, the sets are absolutely amazing. The bridge, they did a fantastic job of not having it be too technologically superior to the original Trek uh, and not to be so far off that it doesn't match Discovery. And I thought that was absolutely fabulous. The way they have the viewfinders for the crew to look in, whether it's on yes. the home, home station, like what Sula was looking through, or on the shuttlecraft that has the little port that you look in that you're not quite sure what it function it served, but it's there. So yeah, it's that retro future look. And I was listening to another podcast. They, the, the sound designers took sound effects from next gen and then made it sound like it's from an earlier time period to, wow. yeah. So it's just, really creative sound design and using prior sound effects from Star Trek episodes to make it fit the era that this is in. It's amazing. And I want to go back and look at the light signals on the bridge. I'm not that good with Morse code, but I think there's a message. I think there's a hidden Easter egg in those flashing red lights. So 
in the next podcast, we'll have to have gone back through, checked it out with Morse code and to see if we're right. Or if I'm just imagining things because I'm in that much of a geeked out mode watching the show. So I learned Morse code when I was as, as a youth in Sea Scouts. My memory of Morse code is very, very limited to SOS. So that would be a, that's a good test to go look at. And perhaps I can ask some of the Sea Scouts of today if they can pay attention to that and see if they can pick it up because a bunch of them also watch Strange New Worlds as well. Because the flashing lights, I was like, that certainly looks like dots and dashes to me. Good observation. You have a really uh, strong (laughs) eye for detail. Uh, ADD. I, I thought I paid attention to, to things. Wow. Like you're, that's good. <laughs> like that's, that's impressive. And the black undershirts uh, yes. under their command uniform. And I was like, I remember James T on the original having that chest hair showing and being kind of grossed out when I was a kid. Like it looks like he's got a trouble in his shirt. They, when they did the rap <laughs> in the second season, that's when the, you know, chest hair would pop out or the um they've they've uh in the motion picture mccoy had a v-neck to show off 70s chest hair it was a thing and uh for some it's pretty fantastic for others it's terrifying so it's a it's a mix it's a mix so yeah style comes back over and over again so uh yeah yeah, good times. Well, that everyone, <laughs> uh, thank you for tuning in to uh, Dana and I as we discuss Strange New Worlds. We will be back because uh, there's just so much goodness to enjoy with episodic Star Trek once again on a weekly basis for the first time since Enterprise. So, with that, everyone, wherever you're listening to us, if you can leave a review, we super appreciate that. We're not out of the pandemic yet, so stay safe, stay healthy, and stay geeky. Be well, everyone.